Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and my beautiful bride is not with me today. Again, she's 
having to take care of the the baby, and uh, we miss her when she's not here. But uh, life changes when you have a baby, <laughs> for sure. So glad you guys could be with us today. We had a really good show. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, in depth. We're going to be looking at the moral argument uh, for the existence of God. I think it's one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God, uh, but it also is one of the most misunderstood um, by atheists and uh, and Christians. So we're going to take some time looking at that. If you know any uh, atheists, let them know we're doing the show. And uh, have them call in. We'd love to talk with them. Uh, phone lines are going to be open. And uh, hope, to, hope to generate some good discussion. So... Uh, a few housekeeping things here. Uh, if you've not liked our Facebook page, I uh, would recommend you do. If you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, it's facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse. Um, you'll be able to, to get all of our, our podcasts are, are there. Uh, we've done a lot of shows in the past that uh, people have accessed. We've had... Uh, not a lot of downloads. We've been doing the show for uh, be a year, I think, in July or August, and uh, we've had, had a lot of good uh, response. We've had thousands of downloads, and um, so if you go to our Facebook page, you'll be able to access them. Also on Blog Talk, uh, you can get them there as well. Uh, two weeks from today, not next Thursday, but the Thursday after, we are going to be doing another special edition of Theology Matters, and we're going to be actually hosting a debate uh, between my good friend Nate Taylor, who's been on here before. He debated the uh, Roman Catholic on Sola Scriptura, and uh, many people were very impressed with his performance. Uh, he is Reformed. He's a, he's a Calvinist, and he's going to be here defending the Reformed view of, uh, of soteriology, of salvation. Primarily, we're going to be looking at unconditional election and irresistible grace. And he's going to be debating a gentleman by the name of Jordan Fischel, who's actually uh, kind of mentored by a guy that we've had on here a lot, uh, Shandon Guthrie. And Jordan is going to be defending the Molinist position, the one that's that's, uh, been really kind of come to notoriety with uh, the writings of Dr. William Lane Craig, who we all love and and uh, respect. So it's going to be a good discussion. Jordan has done uh, some debates before uh, publicly on this, and uh, Nathaniel has uh, has uh, degrees from both uh, Westminster and Talbot Theological Seminary in philosophy. So it's going to be a good discussion. I imagine we'll have a lot of a lot of people listening into that one. So that'll be in two weeks. So um, keep your keep your eyes and ears open for that one. Uh, we got several good shows coming up in the future. I've got uh, a guy, Dr. Sadler. Uh, if you've, you're into philosophy at all, if you go on YouTube, uh, he's a, actually a professor of philosophy, and he's done several uh, hundreds of videos um, on different philosophical concepts. Uh, he's going to be here, and we're going to do a, a string of shows. We're going to look at some uh, um, some well-known Christian philosophers in the past. We're going to do a show on Anselm and some of the arguments that he has put forth. We're going to look at, uh, uh, I think, uh, Augustine as well as Thomas Aquinas, which we did a show 
on some of his ways of of existence about two weeks ago. So that'll be fun. And uh, so we got a lot of good stuff coming up in the future for you guys. So ask that you guys, uh, you know, keep us in prayer and uh, let others know about the show, you know, share it. And, uh, you know, we want the, we want it to get out. We don't make a dime doing the show. We just do it. It's a labor of love, and we want people to uh, to hear the truth. And uh, we live in a culture that is very anti-Christian here in America, and uh, we want to be able to give a, a reasoned defense for the faith. And so actually joining me uh, right now, I wanted to bring on, before we, we get to our guests, um, I wanted to bring on another good friend of mine, uh, Sean White, who has done uh, a few apologetic conferences down there in Arizona where he lives at. And they just recently had one, I believe this last weekend. And I thought it would be a good chance to kind of have him tell us uh, how it started and um, kind of the need for it and some of the speakers he's had down there and uh, be be a good chance to to see the need and maybe hopefully inspire uh, some of our other listeners um, maybe to, to think about trying to start something in your own area. So, Sean, are you there, my friend? I am. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I, I can. I can hear you well. Can you hear me okay? I can. Uh, yeah. I'm just uh, navigating L.A. freeway traffic right now. That's right. You're on your way to on your way to Biola. Is that right? That's right. I'll be there in about five or something like that. Tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, Sean. About your education and kind of where you're studying. And yeah, sure. Um, I I graduated from uh, the uh, undergrad portion of Southern Evangelical Seminary out there near you, um, and then, uh, see, I graduated with that in May 2012, and then last uh, I started working on my uh, master's in Christian apologetics out at Biola through their distance program as well, and uh, yeah, I've just been doing that for the year, and actually, that's why I'm in L.A., I'm, uh, they have a summer residency requirement, and so uh I'm getting out here today to start my two-week uh, residency fulfillment. So you're out there cruising around in, in uh, Los Angeles, huh? I wouldn't say cruising. It's a lot of bumper-to-bumper traffic, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it yeah, is not well, like North Carolina. Yeah, that's true. That's, that is true. Sean, tell us, tell us, about, uh, tell us about the smart faith conference how it started how long you've been doing it uh why you started to do it this would be a good place to start as well okay um yeah well we uh, the way the whole concept and idea came about was uh myself and uh my wife Davina and Leticia Wong well I should start both Leticia and I which you know she's friends of your guys show uh and you guys know her uh, her and I had attended Frank Turek's uh, cross-examined instructors academy training out there in Charlotte, and uh, she and her husband, uh, she and her husband had come to 
Phoenix for uh, uh, Vincent's family. And uh, all of us were together for dinner uh, talking about how come there wasn't anything ever like uh, conferences and things in Phoenix. And uh, I can remember who it is, if it was her, if it was me. Uh, but somebody says, well, we should out in Phoenix. And uh, but had any experience. And uh, we were like, well, we'll go ahead and try it. And so about three years ago, we uh, put on our first conference. Uh, and that consisted of like uh, me, Leticia, Neil Mauman, uh Brett Conkle, and Mary Jo Sharp were the speakers at the first one. Um, last year we had our second one, and it was a uh, that was a that was a major uh, conference, I would guess. So I mean, we had about 15 speakers out uh, last year, and then this year we trimmed it back a little bit, and we only had. Uh, Let's see, I guess about five speakers again. We had, um, who did we have? We had Greg Kokel, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, Doug Powell, uh, Dr. Craig Hazen, and Leticia Wong. Wow, that's a good lineup. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we had a we had a blast this year. It was so it was so nice. We had a really good turnout. We had about I don't know, probably about 140 people uh, came out. Uh, it was really good, and then we've already started planning for next year. Uh, next year, uh, we look to have, or we have commitments from uh, Dr. Clay Jones out of Biola, Dr. Craig Hazen again, and uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland. Yeah, that's, he's actually coming to the big conference they do out here in October uh, that the one in Southern Evangelical Seminary puts on. And I, yeah, I am, I am just, yeah, I'm excited to meet uh, Dr. Moreland. He's 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 a guy I've never got to meet, but is absolutely one of my one of my heroes of the faith. So I'm really really excited to get to meet him. So the fact you guys are able to snag him, that's a big deal, man. Yeah, I I had a uh, quite a bit of help doing that. I I didn't have direct access to him, but some other people that uh, talked to him for me. And uh so I'm I'm very excited to get him out. Yeah, kind of the uh, the the um, Christian culture where you, where you live at. Is there much of an apologetics presence, or you know, there is a small group of us that are actively involved doing apologetics for for people who may not be aware, uh, Phoenix in terms of the size geographically of how much space it takes up, it takes up roughly the same amount of square mileage as L.A., but we're a lot less dense, right? So we don't have as much of a population. But if you were to drive from one end of the Phoenix Metro Valley to the other, it would take you over an hour. And and we have these small pockets of a apologists and apologetic ministries kind of all across the valley. And so there's different people doing different things in their own little kind of pocket. Um, but, you know, Phoenix is a Phoenix is an interesting place. Uh, the last statistics, statistics that I had uh, heard was that, you know, it's only about 20% churched. 
And wow. as you know, as you know, within the church, the those who are in uh, have a heart for apologetics is even a smaller percentage. And so, yeah. you know, us trying to trying to work and get interest and come alongside ministers and and uh, those types of things to offer apologetic training, you know, it's it's a little bit of work. It's a little bit of work, and there is a core group of people uh, who who attend and who come to these things. And, and really, back to one of your original questions of, of why we decided to do this, there were apologetic uh, offerings and events that were happening in Phoenix, but they were never very consistent. In other words, they weren't like year-over-year type of events. They were like one-time events. And then you'd have, you know, a year or two or three before something else would come up. And uh, when we were discussing this, these ideas originally, uh, we, we were like, well, this is what we want. We want something that's going to be consistent, that people get used to, that, that is uh, something happening apologetically on an ongoing basis. That, you know, it starts to kind of get in, into the life out of the people there. And, and it's something that they can count on and rely on and, and know that they can uh, uh, go to and attend. Yeah, I, I really do hope to be able to, uh, to get out there. What are, what are no, some of the topics? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I was just saying we'd love to have you out sometime, man. That would be awesome. Yeah. What, uh, what, what, some of the topics? Yeah, I was just curious. What, what some of the topics you guys uh speak on out there? Well, uh, this year, um, let's see, Greg Kokel did, uh, let's see, what did he do? Well, on we, we had a pre-conference dinner this year on a Friday night, and he spoke on contending for the faith, which was excellent. And then uh, he opened us up Saturday morning on Truth is Not Ice Cream which is a, a great talk, and you can find it out on their website, sdr.org. Um, uh, you know, he's given that talk several times. Uh, let's see. He was followed by Doug Powell, and Doug Powell talked about the objective beauty for the existence of God. And uh, that was a fantastic talk, just looking at, like, the arts and uh, music and and painters and things like that and how and how we can derive a, a, a get to God from objective beauty. Um, in the afternoon, uh, Jay Warner Wallace, who is a cold case detective, uh, did a really cool thing. He set up a mock crime scene out on the stage, and then he walked us through how he would process the crime scene as a detective. And then he took the principles and the skills that he does to do that and applied it to looking at uh, building a case for uh, uh, biblical uh, or, or New Testament reliability of the scriptures and, and, and used it kind of as a answer to, uh, you know, like a Bart Ehrman or something like that. And wow. then uh, we had a, yeah, it was really fascinating and really cool. I mean, it, was, it was really uh, something to watch. I, I love that uh, talk. And then we had a breakout session. Uh, Leticia did a talk called Measure of a Man, which had to do with uh, uh, pro-life issues, uh, uh, you know, abortion, sex trafficking, that type of thing. Um, and then, uh, let's see, when she was doing that, uh, Doug Powell did another talk on biblical archaeology. 
uh, and uh, Dr. Craig Hazen did an introduction to apologetics in his class. And then we all came back together again for one final session, and Dr. Craig Hazen uh, closed this out with a talk on uh, Christianity and world religions. And uh, that, that, that was just excellent. I mean, it was a, it was a great way to end uh, the conference. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a big variety uh, of topics that uh, that you guys talk on. So that's 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 good down there. I'm I'm just curious because I actually I grew up in Utah, is where I okay. where I uh, spent a good portion of time. And uh, of course, that's you know a lot of Mormons out there. How's uh, what's kind of in Arizona where you're at? Is it uh, for as far as non-Christian? Uh, beliefs? Is there uh, one that's kind of more dominant than the other? Um, you know, the, it's a pretty big mix. Uh, and, and it's slowed down to like the research of is a huge uh, Mormon population down in that area. Um, then when you get up around the ASU campus, uh, I have a friend of mine who also has an apologetic radio show uh, there in Phoenix on Sunday nights. Uh, he he does a lot of uh, Muslim apologetics because there's a, a mosque right there, uh, almost across right right within the uh, ASU area. Wow. And if you, if you know anything about ASU, I mean, that's a huge university. Yeah. Um, you know, they have, a, they have a mass of people that go there. And uh, so there's, there's a, you know, Muslim presence right down in there. Um, but then there's a lot of people who, you know, are just kind of spiritual, right? Uh, and we get some of those folks, you know, coming down from, like, uh, the Sedona and Flagstaff area. And I'm not I'm not – I'm not saying all the people from, you know, these areas are, are uh, you know, hold to these kind of beliefs. So I don't want to, I don't want to generalize right. too much, right? And, and but, but you have a very much uh, kind of a, oh, new, uh, new agey type of feel, especially like from the Sedona area where they, you know, crystals and vortexes in the rocks and all that stuff is really, you know, big and in vogue there. Uh, and then, and then, uh, you know, a lot in Phoenix area itself, you know, there's quite a few uh, agnostic and atheists. Is there really? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It, 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 it's very much over the all over the map. Tell us, uh, tell us, Sean, for for Christians maybe who are not real familiar with with um, apologetics, why do Christians need it? Why why don't we just, uh, just kind of read your Bible and just place your faith in Christ and we can't really prove anything, so there's really no point of apologetics. What is what do you say to uh, to Christians? Why do we need apologetics? Well, usually if somebody tells me that uh, they don't think that they need to do apologetics or, or uh, be involved with it or anything like that, uh, the first question I like to ask them is do they ever uh, – participate in, like, evangelism, you know, do they share their faith? And if they say, well, of course they do, well, then I say, well, then do you ever 
uh, respond to any of their questions or any of their objections that they have. And if they say yes, I'd say, well, then I don't know what the problem is. I mean, you're already doing apologetics. You know, that I, I don't know how right. – well, I, I think we can make distinctions, right, between evangelism and apologetics, but I don't think we can do one without the other. And so if you're going to tell me that you don't uh, need to do apologetics or, or, or you don't think it's necessary, then – then to me that also sounds like, well, maybe you also need to do evangelism. But I don't think that's what they mean to say. I just think that a lot of times the term is so unfamiliar uh, that they don't actually realize that they're already doing it a lot of the time. Uh, and, right. and, so, and so for me it's not what you need to do it. It's like, you know, I bet you're already doing this. So how can we help you to do it more effectively? And so that's kind of the approach I usually take with that. I like that. Yeah, that's that's it. Because you know, a lot of Christians just simply don't know, uh, you know, the terminology in that is going to be, you know, unfamiliar with them, and they're, you know, they're not going to they hear the word, and they're just about, you know, immediately thinking, what are we apologizing for, and, and these kind of things. But you know what I found out. Sean, is a lot of times when you start introducing people to apologetics and they actually see, you know, there's good reasons uh, to be a Christian and it's not just blind faith, they don't really love it. You know, at least I would say at least 95% of the people that I talk to, you do have some. I mean, I I do run into some Christians that just are adamantly, you know, anti-apologetics. And normally, right. and it's funny because, uh, you know, I, I am a Calvinist, but it's normally within the Calvinist uh, mindset, unfortunately, that you get this kind of, you know, you don't need apologetics, uh, or you know, you don't offer evidence. I've even heard him say, you know, go as far as saying, you know, giving evidence and this kind of thing, reasons is a sin, you know. So, right. It, it, it's you know, it's an exciting time to be a Christian. We live in a in a really exciting culture. Uh, you know, right now, and uh, desperately need to hear the gospel. So, you know, oh, yeah. we need to do more conferences. Tell people uh, maybe who are listening who would want to start uh, maybe a conference in their area, how would uh, how would they go about doing it? Oh, man. <laughs> what do we got, two minutes? Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, you know, I can I can tell you some of the things I've learned. Um, I, I, I'm still learning a lot because we've only put on just our third one. And, uh, you know, every year is a refining process and a tweaking process and and uh, trying to, uh, you know, look at feedback and listen to feedback and do things better for the, for the next year. But if you're looking, if someone is looking to do it, um, I would say, you know, the key to me is that you have to have a location and you have to have a date. Uh, and, and to me, those are the first two things that you have to nail down. After that, you know, start working some of your contacts. Get get at least one, you know, recognizable uh, person if you can and, and fill it in with, a, you know, either yourself or if you're kind of gifted in that way to, to do apologetics and speak. Uh, you know, bring in some of your friends and do it. And, and just start small. Don't try to go all out. Uh, you know, you can't you can't put on, like, the National Apologetics Conference that's in Charlotte, you know, your first time out of the gate. 
Uh, right. You're, you're going to overwhelm yourself. You're going to burn yourself out and, and all of that. You know, just just start small. Uh, and, yeah, and, and maybe you don't. I was going to say, maybe you don't even do a full day. Maybe you just do like a half day, you know, and you just have a couple of people come in and and kind of gauge what the uh, response is from people and and, and grow it slowly. I mean, we haven't been in any rush to, uh, you know, grow this thing massively. We've been just kind of uh, taking our time and being patient with it and seeing where uh, God wants it to go. Yeah, you know, and there's – you know, a lot of times, too, I think we're trying to get so caught up getting the big names. Uh, there's a lot of guys from the local seminary, you know, that uh, are normally real good and sharp. And, uh, you know, it would be good to uh, to get some of those guys in there, let them start using some of their gifts and talents. And, uh, you know, they're not necessarily big names, but that doesn't mean that they're not, you know, good speakers and can't, uh, you know, doesn't mean they can't contribute you know, good stuff to the conference. So, yeah, I mean, t- typically the only reason they're not a big name is because they haven't been out, right? I mean, they're uh, they're they're doing local stuff, and and to me, I think that it's very important to bring in the local speakers so that they have a they start to get a platform locally there, and they can you know kind of broaden their base of of uh, what they can do. As well as also, you know, it gives them experience in talking in those types of uh, events and venues. Right. Absolutely. Well, Sean, I appreciate you being on with us, my friend. And uh, we're going to have you back on again soon, hopefully, to do another talk on the resurrection. And, Good. I would uh, love it. Yeah. Appreciate all you, you guys do out there, man. And uh, where where could people get a hold of you, maybe, if they had some questions? for you on maybe, um, you know, trying to get some advice or something from you. Do you have an email or something that you could give out or yeah, website? Uh, you can always, yeah, you can always go to uh, smartfaith.org, or if you want, uh, you can also uh, get me an email at smartfaith.org, and that's uh, S-H-A-W-N at smartfaith.org is my email address. And I'm always, you know, happy and willing to talk uh, about this stuff. As a matter of fact, uh, Eric Chabot, who, you, who you've had on a couple times, contacted me a couple weeks ago wanting to get some, wanting to talk about, you know, uh, putting on a conference in his area. And uh, so, yeah, I'm I'm always up for uh, chatting about this stuff. That's great, man. We need more more of the conferences around, so that's that's good, man. We appreciate you. Keep up the good work. Tell, tell your wife we said hello, too. Thank you, and uh, tell uh, Melissa hello, and hope you uh, you guys are doing well with the baby, man. Oh, yeah, definitely running us ragged. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, all right, buddy. Take it easy. All right, you too. All right, God Bye. bless. All right. Well, we're going to have uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and take a uh, two-minute break, and when we come back, we're going to have our friend uh, Dr. Neil. I, I think you say I think it's Shavini. Uh, probably smarter that <laughs> have him correct me uh, when he comes on. But uh, we'll go ahead and take a two-minute break, and we will be right back with. Uh, we're going to be looking at the topic of uh, 
the moral argument for God's existence. Can we be good without God? Can atheists be good without God? Uh, do you have to have the Bible in order to know right from wrong? A lot of these questions come up, and a lot of misunderstandings also arise with this argument. So we're going to take an in-depth detail. Phone lines are open, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Be back in two minutes. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure, and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that text at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line, you have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure standing blameless in front of God, not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in his death, he absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. All right, welcome back, and uh, we have our guest on the line with us, and we're going to be bringing uh, you guys the moral argument for God's existence. Uh, here is a kind of a short biography here of uh, uh, Dr. Neil uh, Henvey. I'll, I'll have him correct me. <laughs> uh, he is a research scientist in theoretical chemistry at Duke University, Graduated in 2001 with an A.B. in uh, chemistry from Princeton before earning a Ph.D. from U.C. Berkeley, uh, where he actually became a Christian, which is pretty surprising because you think normally people at Berkeley is that's normally where they lose their Christianity. So that's that's an awesome story. 2005, uh, he and uh, he uh, worked at his post uh, doc in the Yale chemistry department. Then came to Durham, North Carolina in 2010 with their one-year-old son, uh, who was soon joined by two younger sisters. Neil likes doing apologetics. Uh, when I actually got into it when a childhood friend challenged him to defend his Christianity. And uh, he attends Summit Church in Durham. In fact, I'm gonna, I'll go ahead and bring him on and, and we'll kind of ask him about some of his testimony there 
Dr. Neil, you there? Yeah, I'm there. Can you hear me? Uh, I can, man. I know I can't keep murdering your last name. How do I say that? Uh, it's Shenby. It's very phonetic, actually. Everyone mispronounces it, though, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we appreciate you being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to dive into the the moral argument for God's existence. I'm, I'm, before we do that, though, I'm kind of interested in some of your testimony. You say you actually became a Christian at uh, while going to Berkeley. That's right. So my wife and I had gone to undergraduate at Princeton together, and uh, we were both chemistry majors. And we decided to go to Berkeley for graduate school together. And uh, she was a Christian, and she actually was a missionary kid. And uh, I was not at the time. And I always say, don't ever date non-Christians. You know, it worked out for my wife and I, but I think it's a really bad idea in general. But God used it for, you know, to rescue me. And uh, the way it happened was that I said, well, you know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm moral. Uh, I, I consider myself a very good person, and I'm willing if we have to get married, we have kids. I'll raise them as whatever you want, Christians, whatever. Uh, so it's not a big deal for me. And to show you that I'll meet you halfway, I'll go to church with you. And so we went to, I went to church with her when I got to Berkeley, and I, I uh, you know, the church preached the gospel. And I think one of the major things that had kept me from Christianity for a long time was the idea that Christians couldn't really be intellectual. I was very smart, I thought. I was very intellectual, and people that were Christian were really, really just hiding from the evidence, hiding behind faith as an excuse. But our pastor had a PhD from Cambridge my quantum physics professor sang in our church choir. Uh, he's a re- was a renowned cosmologist. And so I had to actually deal with the fact that who were Christians who believed in the resurrection, believed in miracles, uh, believed that Jesus was God, but also were very intelligent. And so I actually had to listen to what they were saying for the first time really ever. And, uh, you know, people, people, yeah. So that was, a, so actually that's one of the reasons why I, I'm so interested in, in apologetics, because I think that's how God reach me. And, and Pitzelman once asked me, a colleague said, oh, you know, so you had some kind of religious experience. It felt really nice. He's like, well, I get the same thing from, from uh, you know, smoking marijuana. And I said, well, actually, you know, my religious experience, the night that I was converted, I think, um, was not a happy, smiley, pastel, you know, type of night. I remember breaking down and just saying to my wife, Christina, my, my future wife, Christina, uh, I, I don't like Christianity. If this is the message that, you know, what if, what if, of all these questions, uh, you know, what about, what about good people with other religions? Like, why is Jesus the only way to God? All these questions. But uh, I just said that night, I said to God, I was like, I don't know anything anymore. If I want to enter, if I want to become a Christian, I'm going to have to become like a little child. I, I sort of understood that. I, I was very proud of being philosophically oriented and, and thinking very hard about things. But I said, you know, if Christianity is true and it's been true all along, and I don't know anything about God. I think I know a lot about God. I don't, I don't know anything. And, but God, you know, if Jesus is your Savior, I'm willing to follow him wherever he leads me. And I think that was the moment when, you know, I became a Christian. And again, there's a long way to go theologically. Uh, but, you know, what God wants from us is simply surrender to Jesus. You know, recognizing that we are insufficient, that we, we don't have the answers, that we need a Savior, and turning to Christ repenting and believing. And so that's what happened. And so, again, I had a long way to go, but that was, that was how it happened. I got involved in a phenomenal men's Bible study group that discipled me for four years. And uh, I really wow. grew my faith during that time. That's a wonderful. That is 
and that is an awesome testimony. The, the people you work with, I'm, I'm just curious, as far as in the scientific community, um, where do they stand, a lot of them? Is it more more theists, more atheists, more agnostics? You know, I, you know, I only have a small data set because I work with, you know, a set number of people, but I find that theoretical chemists tend to be overwhelmingly, not, not overwhelmingly Christian, but overrepresented as Christian. So, um, you know, it, when I got my postdoc at Yale, I know I, I got to my desk and I was cleaning it out. Some of the guy left some of the stuff there. And I opened one of the drawers and there's a stack of sermon CDs in his drawers. Uh, in my lab at Yale, again, there were maybe, I don't know, eight or nine of us. And there were three or four evangelical Christians among us. And one of the girls in my lab was a, was a deacon at our church. And so wow. theoretical chemists tend, I mean, in my experience, there's some very famous ones who are very strong, mature evangelical Christians. Um, Fritz Schaefer at uh, Georgia, Georgia Tech, I think, uh, uh, um, Tori Van Voorhees at MIT. But anyway, for whatever reason, I think it's because theoretical chemistry and theorists in general tend to think very abstractly. We're, we're not necessarily, uh, we're not experimentalists, so we don't have the same attitude towards, you know, physical stuff, having to touch and, and you know, and hold things in our hand to believe in them because we deal with abstraction all day. I mean, wave functions and, and fields and, and, you know, things that you can't, you can't, you can't touch. And so I think it's right. easier for us then to then say, wait a minute, these things are real. I, I, I work on wave functions all day. They're, I can't touch them. I can't stick them under a microscope even, uh, but they're real. And so it's not a, hard for me to say, well, there can be other things that I can't touch that are immaterial, but nonetheless are true. That's awesome. I mean, that is just a, that is a really, that is a cool, cool testimony. I like that. That's, that's good to see. Great. So uh, I guess we, we should, we should jump into this a little bit on the, on the moral argument here. Um, well, tell us for a second, what, what is the moral argument? So the moral argument is a, is a argument that, that, which is the conclusion that God exists, and in particular a, a good God who grounds objective moral values and who issues moral commands which constitute our duties, that this kind of God must exist. And we get to that conclusion by reflecting on the, the nature of uh, moral values, the right and wrong, good and evil. Uh, and, and so it, it has two premises and a conclusion. And so it's very simple. And I think it's, in my mind, uh, people feel different ways about the moral argument. I think it's sort of essential for Christians to understand and to present uh, because I think Christianity, maybe uniquely in some sense, requires us to engage people with issues of good and evil and right and wrong. I mean, the heart of the Christian message is a, a moral message that we, are, that we are in need of salvation because of our moral failure. And so you can't present the Christian message without establishing something about morality, that it exists, that we, uh, we have neglected our moral duties, and that therefore we need someone to rescue us. So that's why I think even if you don't present the moral argument in the form I'm giving it, you have to talk about moral issues and maybe even uh, talk about some of the objections people have to the idea of objective morality. Let's let's do this. Let's maybe we can we can go over um, maybe some of the arguments for God's existence uh, because I know you know t in order to have a, a moral law giver there has to be um, has to be a creator there has to be a God that exists. Um, is the existence of God even even something that we can prove? And maybe what's 
what some of the arguments we could look at uh, that would show the existence of God. Right. So when people say, well, can you prove that God exists? Or people will say, well, you can't prove that God exists. I'd first ask, well, you have, you have to define proof. What do you mean by proof? And so, you know, all deductive proofs uh, that have premises and reach conclusion, you have to start with some set of premises or axioms or assumptions, uh, colloquially. And then you use logical reasoning to reach some set of conclusions. But you're talking about a rigorous proof then you only get those really in mathematics or, or things like that. I mean, or formal logic. You don't get them in everyday life. I mean, imagine someone said, can you prove to me that you had Cheerios for breakfast? I mean, prove rigorously, logically. And I would say, well, no, I can show you the box. I can show you the dirty dishes. But that's, that's not proof in the sense you're, you're looking for, I think. So in that sense, I'd say, no, you can't prove that God exists because if I present you with a logical argument, which concludes that therefore God exists, you can always deny one of the premises leading to that conclusion. Uh, and, and a good premise sort of has no other sub-premises. You can make arguments for why it's probably true, but you reach pretty, you reach pretty far back, you get some worldly assumptions. You know, if someone assumes, for instance, that nature is all that exists, if nothing, nothing is real and I can't touch it, if they assume that, well, that's going to be a defeater for any argument for God's existence. I mean, it's automatically your argument is invalid for them or, or unsound because they are assuming that nature is all there. I mean, if I can't touch it, then it doesn't exist. Now, we'd, we'd have right. to then say, well, why do you believe that? But, we, but until we examine that sort of presupposition, we couldn't then um, prove that God exists. And I think usually a lot of arguments go back to these basic assumptions we make about reality. But I think when people colloquially ask, can you prove that God exists, what they really mean is, can you give me such strong evidence for God's existence that I'll be compelled to believe that he exists? You just force me, kicking and screaming, to believe that God exists. I think, well... Again, probably not, again, because you're just going to deny one of the premises. Even if the premise were, if you exist, therefore God exists. And some people would be willing to say, well, I don't exist then. So again, for that person like that, you know, okay, I can't prove it to you then. I think what's more likely is I can say, I can give you good evidence. I can give you good evidence that God exists. And are you totally irrational to reject it? Uh, I don't don't think so. I think that, but I think... um, you know, I think also I would want to affirm what the Bible says is that deep down inside, believe it or not, I think we all sort of know that God exists. Deep, deep, deep down inside. And I, I won't get into that too much, but I think you'll see it by the end of the talk with regard to morality, moral questions. Many people will say, I don't believe objective morality. Exists. I just don't believe it exists. And I'm going to give arguments for why I think it does. But I think beyond those arguments, I would like to show by the end of this talk that actually I think there's good evidence to say that you really do know that it exists. In fact, you live as if it does exist. And you know, although intellectually you, don't, you can't explain that belief, you can't explain why you act the way you do, but your behavior shows you know this premise to be true, even if you know, intellectually you deny it. So again, that's a long answer. Can you prove that God exists? Maybe not rigorously, but you can provide good evidence that God exists. And this is where you get into things like the Kalam cosmological argument, the cosmological argument from contingency, the argument from fine-tuning, there, there are a lot of them. And I think the moral argument right. is one of those arguments. Yeah, for those interested, uh, last, uh, what, two weeks ago, we did a whole show on on uh, Thomas Aquinas's Five Ways to Prove uh, God Exists. So uh, you can find that in the archives. So let me ask you this, Neil, because we live in a, in a culture that is pretty much uh, scientism. You know, and it kind of goes along with the question of can we prove God exists? Uh, and you hear a lot of people think, and they really believe that science 
is the only way to know truth. And so you're a scientist. I mean, you do it every day, and you've got the uh, credentials to to prove it. Um, is science the only way to know truth? Uh, no. And I first would have to again ask you what do you, what do you mean by science? Um, you know, you hear subjection a lot. Well, science. If if you can't present me the scientific evidence for say the existence of morality, objective moral truths, then you have no evidence at all. The only uh, way to know truth is through science. So I said, well, what what do you mean by science? And you can define it a lot of different ways. I think uh, a common way to define it would be something like uh, science is a methodology for discovering truth that's based on repeated empirical experimental observation. I mean, that's one of the definitions. I think it's pretty reasonable. Uh, so if someone says, yeah, that's what I mean, and so I'm claiming that science is the only way to know truth, well, that statement actually is self-refuting. Because I can simply ask you, well, how do you know that science is the only way to know truth? You just made an assertion, science is the only way to know truth. Well, how do you know that truth? How do you know the truth of that statement? And the answer is, well, not through science. You can't put that statement in a, in a test tube and, and measure it. You can't put it under a microscope and look at it. So that statement uh, that science is the only way to know truth, you can't know it through science. So it's self-refuting. Uh, so I think you'd have, you have to admit that there are other ways to know truth besides science. And you know, obviously philosophy tells you, would tell you something like, well, is science the only way to know truth? But second, I think there are uh, other clear counterexamples. For instance, we don't discover logical or mathematical truths through science, right? You don't discover that uh, you know the sum of the sides, the length of the sides of the triangle square is equal to the hypotenuse squared uh, through science. You don't measure a, a thousand triangles, and you, you just don't do that. Um, you don't discover well, I was thinking, uh, um, Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, historical, uh, historical things exactly. as well, right? Yeah, actually, exactly. I mean, you can't take my Cheerios. Simple example. You know, I had Cheerios for breakfast yeah. today. I think right. I did. <laughs> my kids definitely did. But you don't know that through <laughs> science. You don't measure, you know, you don't watch me eat Cheerios for a thousand days and then, you know, you predict it. Oh, I, ate it I ate it yesterday. Uh, and that's true of all historical truths. So if you believe that that historical truth can be known, which I, I hope we all do, I hope we all believe that the Abe Lincoln existed, uh, you know, that the Second World War happened, but we don't learn that right. in science. So, again, they're just simple counterexamples that I think would, would undermine that, that claim that, well, science is the only way to know truth. Well, there are other ways also. Uh, now, I would add to those several realms of so mathematics, things like history. But I would add um, moral truths cannot be discovered by science. Now, that's more controversial, so I'll discuss that tonight. But you at least have to admit that you can't exclude all other realms of knowledge immediately. That's just, again, it's self-refuting. Let's, uh, let's take a phone call. We've got, we got some people that are, that are calling in that are wanting to talk to you, Neil. Is that, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. All right, let's go ahead and, and go to the phone lines. Caller, are you there? Uh, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Who's this and where are you from? This is Sam Harper. I'm from Austin, Texas. Uh, hey, Sam. Are you from the CAA? Yep, yep, that's me. So I wanted to ask Neil um, about the about the whole idea that morality is grounded in God. The uh, the way the argument is usually phrased, if there are if there is no God, there are no objective moral values. And I'm wondering, what is it that's necessary to ground morality that justifies in us in calling this being the source of morality God. I mean, it obviously has to be a person, but beyond that, 
what else is necessary, what necessary properties must this being have to in order for it to ground morality? You know, right. what, what's different we... about what's different about God as opposed to anybody else? Because I mean everybody values things. So why is it that that this being's values apply to everybody else's where no other being's values apply to everybody else? You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd probably slow down first. So I, I often, with this kind of uh, argument, um, you, often I'm ha- happy to make baby steps. So, for instance, I, I meet a lot of people who are just moral relativists who say, well, nothing's objectively good or bad. And so you can convince them, for instance, that, well, no, there's a good case to be made for the existence of objective moral truths. That's one step. Uh, they might, so they might say, well, I don't believe that God has to ground morality. Maybe you can ground it in, in nature, in human flourishing, for instance, uh, that you know, utilitarian-type argument. And uh, then I would say, well, let me, I'll, like, I can get to this hopefully a, a little bit, but you can show them why that's insufficient. Then they might say, okay, well, maybe nature, you can't ground moral truth in nature. Uh, let's ground it in some, uh, some non-natural realm of forms, for instance, like, like Plato would. Like they're just, they're just this immaterial idea of, of goodness out there. Uh, it's immaterial, but it's there, and that's the good, right? That, 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 that grounds goodness. Now, I think, again, that's possible. And again, I would be, again, in some ways happy to get someone to that point of saying, well, there's some non-natural idea of goodness out there. But then I might press them and say, well, wait a minute. Um, first of all, what does it mean for just goodness to just exist floating out there in the ether? Uh, I can't, what, what does it mean for goodness to be there? I can conceive of a person, like you, like you alluded to, a person can be good, a person can be just, a person can be compassionate. These are things that we encounter in, uh, in people, but not in anything else, like not in a rock, right? So you, you sort of have to, even to say something, goodness as, as an even idea doesn't make much sense. But I'd also point out that we're saying more than just that God's needed for objective moral values, but also usually we talk about objective moral duties. And again, here, you can't have a duty to a thing, I actually agree with Sam Harris here, you know, the famous uh, neo-atheist. He says, look, a world without consciousness is a world without ethics. You know, you don't have any duties to, to dirt or rocks or the sun. You can only have duties to people, conscious, conscious beings in, in his mind. But I'd actually agree with that and say, so if there are objective moral duties that are, all has always been true, they're always, they've always been our duties, uh, even if there was one person on the entire earth who saw duties, well, that must mean that there's a, 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 stand, or a person issuing moral commands that is, uh, that is again, immaterial. He's issuing immaterial commands. Um, and so, again, you're, you're, and he's, an, he's an authority figure because commands are issued by a person with some kind of intrinsic authority. So I would argue that those two considerations, one that people can be good but not objects, not inanimate objects, and that um, for, for commands to be binding, they have to be issued by a competent authority. Both of those point to, again, a God-like figure. Now, I think your question was, um, was well, why do we call it God? Um, I, I, here, actually, I would say, well, okay, you don't have to call the, the, the personal source of all morality who issues moral commands. You can call it something else other than God, but this is exactly what the Bible talks about when it talks about God. And so at some point I would appeal to revelation. I mean, Christianity claims that it is a religion that is revealed, that, uh, that God revealed these things to human beings and, and ultimately came in the person of Jesus to, to reveal who he is and say, 
again, well, this is what Christians mean when they talk about God. Now, they might be wrong, but certainly it accords with these ideas of moral values and duties that, that we discuss in this argument. So does that answer your question a little bit? I know I didn't directly, you know, say, well, it's got to be. The it's, a, it's a difficult question. I don't think I'm really yeah. articulating it very clearly, but maybe let me try again. The, 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 we have, there's a lot of things that the Bible reveals about God, but the moral we can't deduce all of those things from the moral argument alone or from the cosmological argument alone. Oh, oh, the cosmological yeah. argument, you know, will tell us certain things about God, but it doesn't tell us everything about him. What I'm wanting to know is the, the, all they can tell us about God is whatever is necessary to explain whatever it is we're trying to explain. Like with the Absolutely. cosmological argument, we can deduce that God is immaterial because he would have to be immaterial to be the creator of the universe. So yeah, with I, the moral argument, we can deduce that God is a person because he would have to be a person in order to ground morality. But what yeah. I'm trying to say is, you know, there, there's a lot of persons. I'm a person, but I don't have any moral authority over anybody else. So right. I'm asking what, what else must this being have to make it a legitimate source of moral authority besides just being a person? Yeah, I think... Like, like the, why is it that we're obligated to obey this being, but but we're not obligated to obey you or me or, or any human or something like that? Right, okay, so that you're asking then, so why do God's commands constitute our moral obliga- obligations, for instance? For instance, when I issue commands, uh, Sam doesn't have to obey. It's not, it's not, you're not right. obligated to obey my commands, but you're obligated to obey God's commands. And I think what a right. divine command theorist would answer is that, well, well that's simply what... Our, our obligations are constituted by. So it's sort of like asking, why is water H2O? You know, well, well, H2O is constituted by, or water is constituted by H2O. That's what it is. And so this well, is... Well, that's not really what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, what, oh. what, what is it about God that gives him this authority? You know, well, like, like if I had a... The president has authority over the vice president, or a commander has authority over his um, enlisted people. Right. Um... What is it about God? What's different about God from every other sentient being that gives him moral authority that nobody else has? Right. I think, um, and this is hard because you're, and you're dealing with God, he's not, just, um, he's not just an authority. He is the ground of authority. Like In other words, or, or he's not just valuable. He's the ground of value. Right. I like to, this right. is a way that might be helpful to think about it. Um, I like to use this thing. Let's say that I said, well, you're right, you're right. God, you know, God issues, God has authority. He's authority to command us. But really, the reason he only has that authority because there's some, because it's right for us to obey his command. You say, well, what do you mean it's right? Is there some higher authority that says you must obey God? I said, oh, yes, there is. There's God, God 2.0. And God 2.0 tells you obey God 1.0's command. Say, wait a minute, why should I obey God 2.0's command to obey God 1.0? Say, well, there's God 3.0, and he tells you to obey God 2.0's command. So wait a minute, why should I obey God 3.0 command? And so you, you, what you do is you build up this infinite regress, right? You can always ask. You can always ask, well, what makes God, you know, end? Uh, why does he have authority? And at some point, you have to terminate that regress. But this is the point. Christians have always held that God terminates that regress in many ways. It terminates the regress of value, what makes something valuable, what makes something good, what makes something... What, why, why does the government have authority? Why, does your, why do your parents have authority? Uh, so, and... When, when I say, well, how do you justify that? Well, you can't exactly justify it in the sense of appealing to something higher. You can just examine it as a worldview, as a coherent as a worldview. 
What I would right. say is the Bible talks about God the seity. This is an old Puritan phrase. which we talk about a lot. But the Bible says that God doesn't depend on anything else for anything, not his existence, not his, the goodness of his commands, that he is the ultimate. Again, he terminates all these regresses of explanation, of the causation, uh, of value. And I think that does solve the problem. Because, because any other solution, if you say, well, I don't understand where the authority comes from, you're going to be left with an infinite regress. You can always ask, well, why? What gives it this authority, this, this, this authority figure? So I think, well, I, think the Bible gives us, I think the Bible gives us an explanation of uh, why God is a sufficient authority. If he created everything, he's the source of everything, then, you know, he's the boss of everything. That seems to, yeah, be, to be enough to uh, halt the infinite regress. But what I'm asking is, I mean, you can't just assume Christianity is true and say, therefore, um, the moral argument is sound. The moral argument is an attempt to argue for the existence of God, not from the existence of God. So we can't just – I'm asking, can can you deduce from the moral argument that, therefore, this being that has moral authority over us is also a creator? Uh, Because that that, that would help the infinite regress. Yeah, I – I think your answer that God created us, it's, it's sort of, you know, that's a one answer. I think it's a good one, except that I think then you're like, well, why should, I, why should I obey the one who created me? Do I have an obligation to obey the one who created me? And you're kind of like, well, of course I do, right? I mean, but someone can ask that question still. And so you're still left with the, the infinite regress. I think it's a, maybe a more comprehensive answer. But your question about, can the moral argument get us to everything about God? Absolutely not. In fact, that's why we need special revelation. We need God to reveal certain things about himself. Um, but but what I'm asking is what can we know about God? I mean, so far you've, yeah. you've explained why it is that God must be a person. Is that all that we can infer about God from the moral argument? The moral argument tells us that we have a person who is the ground of moral goodness, which means that he's essentially he's the standard, which would have to mean he's perfectly more, he's morally perfect. Right, uh, you have to be a person. You've already talked about that, so I agree with that. So he's a morally perfect uh, person, who then also stands as the ground for uh, for morality itself. Which again, you could say, well, maybe a, maybe a human being could be morally perfect. Now that's, that's not true, but even if they could, you say, well, is that person the ground? I say, no, God's the ground in a way that uh, human beings aren't. And again, you could you could point to say, um, God's aseity, right? He he has always been uh, who he is. He's always been good. Uh, his character has never changed. And so he's morally perfect in a way that human beings cannot be. He can ground morality in a way that human beings cannot. Because so are you saying you know, that we can infer from the moral argument that God is unchanging as well? Uh, that's, I've never thought about that. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to think about that. I, but I think I would say that you can infer that he's morally perfect. That doesn't imply no because there's one thing to say that certain attributes are sufficient to ground morality. It's another thing yeah. to say that they're necessary. And it seems to me that the only way we can infer attributes of God from the moral argument is to say that these attributes are necessary for God yeah. to be a ground of morality. So I would, I would agree with you that so the moral argument establishes that there is a figure, a being, who is perfectly good, who, who is imperfectly good in a way that no contingent being can be, because he has to ground goodness itself over all possible worlds. We can't be, his goodness can't be contingent. We can get into that in a little bit. But um, those are sort of two things. And the third thing is that he's personal, again, because he can issue commands and he can, uh, he can, he can have attributes that are characteristic of a person, like love, justice, mercy, compassion. Um, mm-hmm. And now, can you get more than his his perfect goodness, his his necessary goodness, and his 
his person is effectively a person, not an impersonal force. I haven't thought about it. I don't think you need to, though. So I, had to get, I would combine this argument with other arguments about God. And, and more than that, with, uh, I'd point out that, well, this is exactly the God that we see in the Bible. Um, and so now that's not sufficient to prove the Bible is therefore uh, you know, inspired, but it ought to be on the table. Then you're like, well, what kind of being is this? Oh, it looks a lot like the Judeo-Christian God. Um, right. And again, I, and I'm, I'm also saying that this argument by itself wouldn't necessarily point to, say, a Christian God versus the Jewish God versus the Muslim God. I would just point to a sort of generic God. Um, so I would agree with that. Um, but again, I, this is why I wouldn't stop there. What I will say, and this is a teaser hopefully for the end of the talk, is that I think the moral argument itself points to Christianity in a very surprising way. And so hopefully I'll get the chance to talk about that. So I, I don't think that you can, that you should just stop at the moral argument and say, oh, therefore some generic God exists. I think that, again, when you, when you look at special revelation, when you look at the Bible, you'll find very surprising things about uh, the morality that does point you beyond just a generic God to uh, the Christian God in particular. And I'll talk about that hopefully at the end. All right. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for calling, nice Sam. Appreciate it. Yep. Call anytime, right. buddy. All right. Well, how about we uh, kind of up against a break? Let's go ahead and take a break uh, real quick, about two-and-a-half, three-minute break, and then we will come back. Phone lines are open, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Be back in a few minutes. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.CrossExamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to His prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. 
There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace. All right, welcome back to Theology Matters, and we've got Dr. Neil Shevney on with us, and we are looking at the moral argument for the existence of God. Had a great, uh, great little exchange there with our good friend Sam Harper from uh, Christian Apologetic Alliance. Let me let me let people know out there if you are interested in uh, uh, if you're on Facebook and you're interested in in a really good room uh, that deals with a lot of different apologetic issues and if you have uh, you know apologetic questions of course you know read the, the guidelines and everything uh but CAA is a is a really good room and uh, we have actually had a lot of guests from that room uh actually on our show so um check out the uh, Christian Apologetic Alliance on Facebook and uh it's a, it's a good room so Neil, we are back, my friend, and uh, and uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, why don't we quickly go through the argument itself? I know we don't want to kind of get, get uh, caught up in some, some side issues, but let me present the argument quickly, and then we can I'll defend the premises, and then we can maybe get into some other conversations, just so we don't leave anyone wondering what I'm what, what I'm talking about. Absolutely. You go, go ahead and, and show us where you want to go. Sure. Okay. So the, the moral argument is a, an argument with two premises and a conclusion. The first premise is that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two is that objective moral values and duties do exist, and therefore it logically follows that God must exist. Um, so the argument is valid, meaning that it has a valid logical form. If the two premises are true, then the conclusion follows logically. The question is, are the two premises true? Is it a sound argument? Um, and so if you want to deny the conclusion of the moral argument, you're going to have to attack one or both of the premises. So let me quickly define some terms and then defend the premises equally briefly, and then we can open up the phone lines again and, and, and uh, talk about this in more detail. Maybe, maybe sure. that will have some questions too. So first, uh, by objective moral values, what do we mean? Objective moral values are values like compassion, love, and justice, which are good or bad, independent of human belief. It's not just a matter of, my personal taste, my community's personal taste, even all of human society's personal beliefs. Uh, these are uh, independent of human belief. They're, they're good independent of human belief. Objective moral duties are obligations which are true and binding on us, again, independent of human belief. They're not simply imposed on me by, say, my mother and father or by society. Um, uh, or, or, yeah, so uh, and even if I say, well, I reject those duties, I'm not going to perform them while they're still uh, binding on me. They're my obligations, even if I, if I flout them. This is why philosophers talk about moral facts, statements about morality that are either true or false. It's like physical facts. So I know gravity is a physical fact. I can deny that gravity exists. I can say, I don't believe in gravity. You know, no one believes it. Maybe everyone in the whole world denies that gravity exists. But if I walk off of a 10-story building, I'll fall to my death because gravity is an objective physical fact. In the same way, objective moral facts, if they exist, are just as true as objective physical facts like gravity. Um, another thing to make clear is we're talking about moral ontology. It's the question, what are moral facts? What is good and evil? What is right and wrong? And to what element of reality do moral facts correspond? 
We're not talking about moral epistemology. That means how do we know good and evil? We're not talking about ethics. That means what, what kinds of things are evil, what kinds of things are good. Uh, we're only asking the question, uh, when I talk about morality, what am I talking about? W what element of reality do those moral facts correspond to? Uh, and so, you know, sometimes people will say, well, you're saying that if I don't believe in God, that I, you know, that I can't be a good person, or if I don't believe in God, I can't, I can't know what's right or wrong. I have to have the Bible. Now, actually, you know, I'm not saying either of those things. We're talking about ontology. So, you know, the, the Bible actually says clearly that people who do not believe in God know right from wrong. They know what's good. They know what's bad. It's Romans chapter 1 says that very clearly. Um, so we can know good and evil through our conscience, through, you know, reading books by ethicists, through, you know, scripture, through scripture. We can know it those, those ways. Uh, but we're not claiming that you can only know it through, uh, through say, belief in God. And we're also not claiming that, that uh, people who don't believe in God can't engage in moral behavior. Right. I can help an old lady cross the street, whether I'm a Christian or, or a Muslim or an atheist. Uh, uh, you know, so we're not making that argument. We're simply asking, what is the basis for morality? Uh, okay, so that's a moral argument. So quickly, uh, premise one says that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties cannot exist. And the way to defend this premise, I'm going to just take one uh, – common worldview, which is naturalism, the idea that nature is all that exists. So only, you know, fermions and bosons and energy, these kind of things are uh, all that exists in the world. And if that's true, can we still have objective moral facts? And this, uh, many uh, atheists are naturalists. They still believe that, uh, that objective moral facts can exist, even if nature is all there is. And to, uh, to, to, to counter that claim, I just have a simple thought experiment. So just imagine the scenario. Imagine I have two wardrobes. Now, one of those wardrobes contains a human being, and one of them contains a really complex, self-sustaining chemical reaction of DNA and RNA and protein and lipids, right? And I give you a flamethrower, and I say, I want you to just torch one of these wardrobes. Now, which one do you want to, to, to burn? And you'd say to me, well, you've got to tell me which one contains the human being. And I'd say to you, well, why does it matter? And you say, well, look, human beings are valuable in a way that a bunch of chemical reactions, no matter how complicated they are, no matter how expensive they are, they're just not valuable in a way that a human being is valuable. But if I were a naturalist, I would say, well, well why? You know, what are human beings other than highly complex, self-sustaining chemical reactions of DNA, RNA, protein, lipids? That's what we are right. at root. We're all reducible mm -hmm. to that. So unless there's something beyond what we're made of, the stuff, the physical stuff that we're made of, uh, what is it that gives us intrinsic value? And if we have no intrinsic value, then how can there be any basis for naturalistic morality? Right? You know, smashing a human being on the head it would be no different than smashing a rock. You're just smashing a bunch of particles. And it's because the intrinsic value of all human beings is sort of a prerequisite for all metaethical theory or all, all naturalistic theories uh, of morality, for all metaethical theories of morality. Uh, you have to establish that. And I would just argue that naturalism can't do it. It can't show why human beings are, are valuable in a way that other physical things, like rocks, are not valuable. So that's, again, that's a, a really quick defense of the first premise. Does that make any questions, Devin? Or No, I mean, that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's premise one, the idea that if God does not exist, uh, then objective moral values and duties cannot exist. And the example I gave for a naturalist, if you're, if you're a naturalist who believes that nature is all there is, well, what makes human beings intrinsically valuable? I would say nothing. So if human beings aren't intrinsically valuable, 
then why is murder or rape or anything else bad? Right? You just I mean, you talk about murdering a rock or you know, or murdering a you know a bacteria. Why is that well, you know not why is that bad? But murdering a human or, or not as bad as murdering a human being. But the second premise is that objective moral values and duties uh, do in fact exist. Um, so again, many atheists will say, no, I deny that. I think objective moral values and duties do not exist. I think everything is relative, just your own personal opinion. So how do we counter that objection? Uh, first, I point out that moral beliefs, beliefs that there is a moral truth about good and evil and right and wrong, is a properly basic belief. That means it doesn't need to be justified by other beliefs. You don't appeal to other beliefs to say, well, this is why I believe morality is, is, exists. Uh, an example of other, other properly basic beliefs would be things like the existence of the external universe. How do I know that I'm not just in a matrix? I don't think I am, but, but how do I know that? Well, I, I, just, I just assume it's a properly basic belief. How do I know that, that other people have minds like my own? How do I know they experience pain and pleasure and the color red and the smell of cookies? Uh, how do I know that they're not just zombies? Well, again, that's a properly basic belief. Humans just beings naturally know there's a category of, you know, other minds exist. In the same way, human beings naturally intrinsically know that there are categories of right and wrong. I know we have three little kids, my wife and I, and they do plenty of, of naughty and bad things, but they've never asked me what good or bad is. When I say, Adrian, that's bad, or Adrian, that's good, he doesn't say, oh, by good, do you mean that, you know, uh, that you'll reward me if I do it? By good, do you mean that it will increase the flourishing of, of human beings in general? No, he immediately knows that there's a category called good and, and a category called bad or right and wrong. Uh, he knows that there are th there's things, being called, you know, things like distance or, or uh, you know, heaviness, weight, color. These are just uh, you know, parts of his cognitive belief system that are just innate to human beings. So I'd argue that moral categories are just like that. They're properly basic. So there's no need for me to appeal to some other reasoning as to why they exist. But I do want to do that. I want to actually make a case that there's, there's evidence that objective morality exists and can be immediately perceived by human beings. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give quickly, because, again, I want to waste too much time. I want to give five empirical objective facts. No one disputes these facts. And argue that, that the existence of uh, objective moral values and duties is the best explanation for these facts. This is called abductive reasoning. Now, I'm not going to prove with this argument that moral facts exist. I'm going to argue that their existence and their perception uh, by human beings is the best explanation for these five facts. So quickly, what are these five facts? Uh, number one, there's across all human cultures, there's some basic standards of morality. Uh, you know, that people believe that good and evil exist across all cultures and basic standards of behavior. You know, don't murder, don't steal. Think, uh, you know, uh, there are some sexual norms in all societies. And you can look through C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, his appendix. It shows over and over all these cultures across the world that have affirmed this throughout history. In addition to that, there also exists in all cultures what are called truly altruistic acts. So things like throwing myself on a grenade to save uh, my friends. That happens all over, the, all over the world in all different cultures, uh, you know, adopting children who are not related to me genetically. Now, what's interesting is that people will say, oh, well, we can explain moral behavior and altruism. It's just it's evolution. Evolution did it. What I want to point out is that actually if you ask people working in evolutionary biology, there's a big debate, a huge debate going on about whether evolution and how evolution can actually explain 
moral behavior and true altruism. Now, I can get into that. I have some quotes from people like Jerry Coyne, Richard Dawkins, and, uh, and um, other people about this issue, but I just want to move on. So uh, at the very least, I think it's clear that if objective moral facts actually exist and we know they exist immediately and perceive them, that explains why human beings all through history, across all cultures, behave with generally the same standards of morality, at least really broadly speaking, and also why we find these really strange, incredibly altruistic acts, like throwing yourself on a grenade to save uh, strangers, diving into the water to save someone drowning who you don't know. They exist in all cultures, but it's explained if we know these things are good, and we just intuitively know that. Number two, the majority of people who deny that objective moral facts exist still act as if it does. This is very interesting. People that are explicitly moral relativists, you say, I deny that good and evil exist. It's just my personal preference. No, there's nothing objectively good about you know, compassion and love. There's nothing objectively evil about rape or murder. Uh, it's my personal preference. And yet, uh, they will still behave roughly morally, even when no one's watching them. If you gave them a knife and they were in a dark elevator with an old woman with a, with a full, you know, a wad full of uh, money in her purse, they wouldn't just stab her and take the money, most of them, uh, even if they were guaranteed they would not be caught. But why? Isn't that odd? I mean, they value money, right? Yeah, they value money, but they just they, they couldn't do it. They're like, well, I, I just can't do that. Well, why? It's not objectively wrong if you're, if you're correct about moral relativism. They're like, well, I just can't do it. I know, you can't. Well, I can explain that. It's because moral facts exist and you know they exist. You know, even though you deny they exist intellectually, you behave as if they do because you, you perceive them at some deep level. Uh, number three, uh, we all have the intuition that uh, certain things are right and wrong. Now, again, it's not the same as one or two. Uh, this third point so that we have the intuition that some things are just right and some things are just wrong. If evolution were responsible for our moral behavior and our moral, uh, yeah, our moral behavior, well, our moral behavior could be a reflex action. Like, I don't, I don't have the intuition that sneezing is good. I just, I just sneeze. I don't have the, but I have the moral intuition that, say, murder is bad. But I, why is that? Why would evolution give us these, these really high-level intuitions about right and wrong and good and evil? It doesn't have to, so why is it there? Well, maybe evolution didn't give us these things. Maybe they're just real moral truths that we perceive. Number four, the majority of philosophers, believe it or not, the majority of philosophers, according to a recent poll, are moral realists. They believe that objective moral facts exist. It's about 56 in favor versus 27% against. So two to one ratio of moral realists against moral anti-realists. And finally, there are many naturalists like Sam Harris or Shelley Kagan who affirm that objective moral facts actually exist. They really do exist. They're moral realists. Sam Harris is vehement. He's, he's a moral realist. He, he rejects moral relativism very, very ardently. But he has a real problem in explaining how he can do that. If you saw his debate against William Lane Craig, he just had no answer to, to Craig's objections. Uh, he started talking right. about hell and Islam, all these things. And so you have to ask, well, wait a minute, uh, you know, Dr. Harris, if you can't explain your philosophical position, you're very vehement about moral facts. But there's so you can't explain them at all. You have real problems explaining why they exist. Why would you do that? Why not just be consistent and say, "Oh, you're right. You know, I can't explain them. They don't exist," uh, like many many moral anti-realists do. And again, I can explain his behavior. It's because he knows they exist. The deep level, he knows they exist, and he just can't get away from them. Even though it really he has major problems reconciling that with his naturalism. Uh, okay, so those are five facts I presented. Now. My argument, I think it's pretty clear that if moral facts exist 
and we all know they exist in a deep level, that explains all five of those empirical facts. But if you want to say, well, they don't exist at all, I, I think you need to provide a better explanation for all five of those facts. And you know, a common one people will say, oh, evolution did it somehow. If, if someone wants to call in and ask me that question, I, I have uh, numerous quotes from uh, Jerry Coyne, Richard Dawkins, and a few other people, Stephen Pinker, who basically say the gist of it is this. Um, there's a big disagreement in the, evolution, the atheist evolutionary biologist community as to how and even whether evolution can account for moral, uh, for moral behavior and altruism. That is not a closed question by any means. Uh, so you have to at least, you can't just punt and say, oh, I'm sure it is an explanation. Do, do a little reading on that before you say that. Okay, so that, that's my defense of both premise one and premise two of the moral argument. And so the conclusion would then be that, uh, the, that God, if you affirm premise one and premise two, then God must exist. Right. Okay, well, uh, so the arguments out there, he's kind of defended the premises. Um, maybe we can go back and look at uh, some of the specifics a little more in detail. We've got about uh, 35 minutes. So, sure. Neil, I mean, if it's okay with you, you want to go ahead and open up the phone lines. Uh, 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. If you guys have any questions or comments, uh, we would love to hear from you. I wanted to play this clip for you um, by Dawkins uh, on morality, and I just wanted to, to get your what you think about it. It's a, he's talking about uh, religion and, uh, and morality. Um, my question is for Professor Dawkins. Considering that uh, atheism cannot possibly have any sense of absolute morality, would it not then be an irrational leap of faith, which atheists themselves so harshly condemn, for an atheist to decide between right and wrong? Absolute morality, the, the, the absolute morality that a religious person might profess would include what? Stoning people for adultery? Death for apostasy? Uh, punishment for breaking the Sabbath? These are all things which are religiously based absolute moralities. I don't think I want an absolute morality. I think I want a morality that, that is thought out, reasoned, argued, discussed, and... based upon, I could almost say, intelligent design. Um, <laughs> can we not design our society which has the sort of morality, the sort of society that, that we want to live in? If you actually look at the the moralities that are accepted among modern people, among 21st century people. We don't believe in slavery anymore. We believe in equality of women. Um, we believe in, in being gentle. We believe in being kind to animals. These are all things which are entirely recent. They have very little basis in biblical or Quranic scripture. They are, th they are things that have developed over historical time through a consensus of reasoning, sober, discussion, argument, legal theory, political and moral philosophy. These do not come from religion to the extent that you can find the good bits in religious scriptures, you have to cherry pick. You, you search your way through the Bible or the Quran and you find the occasional verse that is a, an acceptable 
profession of morality. And you say, look at that, that's religion. And you leave out all the horrible bits. <laughs> and you say, oh, we don't believe that anymore. We've grown out of it. Well, of course we've grown out of it. We've grown out of it because of secular moral philosophy and rational discussion. Tony Burke. Love to hear your thoughts on that, Neil. That's such a great quote. I have one right here, actually. This is from the God Delusion. So this is what uh, Dawkins says. He talks about, he said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now, in the clip you played, it's interesting. You heard the same, exactly the same reasoning. He said, oh, well, he said, look at, the, look at the things that religion teaches, stoning people and you know, doing all these terrible things. But then he says, well, I wouldn't want an absolute morality like that. Well, well wait a minute, Richard. If you don't want an absolute morality, and I actually prefer the term objective because absolute usually means that like, you never, ever, 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 ever should, should lie or something like that. You know, I think there, there's, there's some kind of – even, even in the Bible, there are situational uh, ethics. There are very few absolute commands in any sense. Um, but say objective morality. If, if Dawkins doesn't want objective morality, but then turns around and condemns all of the things he finds in the Bible, on what basis? Well, modern right. people don't like those things. But wait a minute. Well, who cares what we like? I mean, if he'd been giving that speech in, in, in Germany in 1942 – he would have included that, you know, the, that the Bible is full of, you know, people that love, you know, Jew-loving Bible, right? It's full of, you know, this kindness to the, the, the racial outsiders and kindness to the uh, impure classes. And he would have had a different set of, of uh, criteria for rejecting the Bible. But that depends on our society that we live in. And so if he doesn't want an objective morality, how can he then immediately turn around and say that he rejects the Bible for what? For being objectively bad? No. Because he doesn't like it. Well, but Richard, I don't like lima beans, but I don't go around claiming that you know lima beans are objective. They don't exist, for instance. I have to have some standard objectively to say they're objectively bad. And so if he's going to reject the Bible on objectively moral grounds, okay, well, let's provide some again a naturalistic, according to him, account of morality. But if not, then he's welcome to say, well, I don't like the Bible ethics because it's my personal preference. Okay, that's fine too. What you can't do is sort of equivocate on what you mean by. Uh, you know, morale, well, not, it's not objective, and yet I'm still going to condemn God or the Bible in these very objective terms. So I think that's actually what's one of the other problems I had for moral relativists was moral criticism. You know, I, I see, I work, uh, you know, at Duke, and I see a lot of college students who are very passionate about injustice in the world. I think it's great. You know, people, uh, you know, you know with, with, with tables protesting against slave trade and, and sex trafficking, and I think it's wonderful. Uh, but I have to ask you, if you're a moral relativist, by what authority do you go into some you know, sub-Saharan African village and tell them that female genital mutilation is evil? By what authority do you impose your Western standards on their African standards? What gives you that right? So, so again, as a moral relativist, you can't really object to any other culture's actions no matter how heinous they are. And that's a, you, see, you see this... this Inconsistency with Dawkins a lot, um, and, and other people too. But I think it's I think that's why it's really hard to live as a consistent moral relativist unless you're going to completely forego any kind of moral censure in even the most egregious cases. 
Yeah, one of the things that comes up, and, and you hit it quickly, um, I think, as we were, you were sketching out that argument, but the, the, this argument gets so misunderstood so many times, uh, especially by the atheists who think you're saying uh, that unless you believe in God, you can't be good. Talk to that for a minute. What, how, is, how is that a total misunderstanding of this argument? We're talking about moral epistemology, uh, sorry, moral ontology, not epistemology or ethics. We're not asking how do you know what's good. You can know a number of different ways. Uh, how do you like what what is good? What kind of behaviors are good? That's ethics. We're asking what is goodness. So here's an here's an example. This is a similar example. Um, you can ask the question: What is gravity? Right? What what grounds the concept of gravity? I, you can say, well, the gra- the concept of gravity is grounded in the existence of the external universe. There's a, there are physical laws, there's a real universe out there, and it obeys the law of gravity, right? Now, I might come along and say, well, I don't believe the external universe exists. I don't believe it exists. I think it's all an illusion. And I'd say, well, do you believe that gravity exists? No, it doesn't. It's an illusion too, right? And then I'd say, okay, so you don't believe in that gravity is, exists at all. Say, no, it's an illusion. I'd say, okay, uh, and they say, well, uh, can... And if they accuse you and say, well, you claim that I can't play basketball as well as you. I say, no, I'm not. Uh, because you could, you could play basketball, even as a gravity denier. You might say there's a very complicated illusion going on when I shoot the ball. But you can still play basketball. You, know, you might not want to, but you could still do it. In the same way, someone who can't explain why things are moral, what grounds morality, might still behave in a very moral way. They might say, well, it's my personal preference to not go around raping and murdering. I really like compassion, right? They can't explain why they do these things, but they can still do them. And again, the Bible's clear on this. People can do moral behavior. They can refrain from doing bad things. They can do good things uh, without believing that God exists or, and without having Scripture. And again, Romans 1 says that it's plain to people through their conscience what is right and wrong, that these things exist. Um, I would raise a caveat there that you know, it's important to remember also that that in the ultimate, in the ultimate analysis, no one's good, not atheists and not Christians. And there, no one's yeah, good. I was none of us are Yeah, we're talking relevant terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask how, how you square that, like with Romans three, uh, ten yeah. through twelve. No one's good. That's that's talking towards God, not towards each other, right? Yeah, but when atheists are asking, you know, can atheists be good, they're asking this on a human level. They're saying basically, are you, right. are you calling me like an evil, child-murdering lunatic? And I'm saying, no, I'm not calling you right. that. Uh, yeah. The question of like, well, are, are we in a right standing with God? That's a different right. They're not asking that question. Yeah. Yeah. Let me add one more really good uh, – to show how, how hard it is to be a consistent moral relativist, let me add a, a, one more, one more um, thought experiment here. Sure, sure. We got, we got 25 minutes, so take your time. Okay. Uh, imagine that I offered – let's say you're a moral relative. You say, I, don't, I deny that objective moral facts exist. They don't exist. Say, okay, well, explain something to me. I Imagine I can offer you a pill called an amorality pill, and it's going to remove all of your negative moral emotions. You'll have no more guilt, no more empathy, no more remorse, but all of your positive moral emotions will be intact. So you can, you can still play with your kids. You can still love your family. You can watch them fall asleep at night and stroke their hair and just do all this rush of tenderness. You know, all, all those will remain, but you'll have no guilt, no ability to feel guilt. All the, the bad things, you know, you don't like feeling, no one likes feeling guilt, uh, but they'll, they'll be gone. You can't just feel they're gone. So if one day you decide that you'd be happier if, if your wife and your kids were all dead, you could just take an ax and kill them all and just sit down and have a cup of coffee afterwards. No guilt, right? 
Now, the question is, if you're a moral relativist, would you take the pill? And I have to say, it's hard to, for a moral relativist, it's got to be incredibly hard to answer that question because there's not objectively right and wrong, right? So you can't say, well, I, killing your kids is wrong. Well, not according to you. And you definitely don't like feeling guilty. No one does. No one likes feeling guilty. No one likes feeling, you know, their conscience bothered them. No one likes feeling empathy for people that are suffering. You kind of wish you, you, could, you like feeling good things, but not bad things. So how could a moral relativist say, well, I wouldn't take the pill, but explain that to me. Because on, on your worldview, it seems like you say, yeah, that's, that's right. I'd just take the pill. Because then I could feel all the ha- I could I could choose to love my kids, sure. But if I chose not to one day, I could just kill them. So again, that's and then there's one other thing, interesting experiment, but I won't go into it. But that's a really a question that all moral relativists need to consider. Why would you not take that pill? And again, I can explain why he wouldn't because you know there's right and wrong. You know that certain things are wrong, and you want even you don't even want to become that amoral monster like you know Christian Bale in American Psycho. You want to – that would be inhuman in a sense, but it doesn't fit within your worldview. So I think it's a really challenging challenging uh, thought experiment. Let's let's look again maybe because uh, we've got some time. Let's look again at the um, – you hear this a lot when you bring up um, the objective morality argument about um, human flourishing. You know, basically we should do that which is going to the promote um, – human flourishing. How, how do you respond to that? Because they'll say, you know, things like, oh, you know, it's, it's obviously good that humans exist, right? How, how do you respond to some of those objections? Right. I mean, if, you, if they're making a broadly utilitarian picture, basically saying human flourishing is good. But again, if they're a naturalist, then they have to define human flourishing as basically it's all reducible to sort of atoms and molecules. They have to basically be something like, well, having lots of dopamine in your brain is good. That's what it means to be good. And not having enough dopamine is bad. Uh, but Sam Harris made a really interesting, as a footnote actually in his, his book, The Moral Landscape, but he, and, and Dr. Craig brought it up in their debate. But he points out, Harris, who's a utilitarian, he makes exactly this argument. He points out in a footnote that uh, it could be that really, really, really evil people like murderers and rapists are the happiest people in the world. There's a possible world in which that's true, right? You kill all the good people, and all the left are rapists and murderers, uh, and, and they're really happy. But, but they're evil. <laughs> they go around raping. You know, there's one helpless woman, and there are like a thousand evil men uh, trying to harass her. But they're all happy doing it. Now, is that a good state of affairs or a bad one? You're like, well, of course it's bad. Well, not according to this idea that human flourishing is good. There's one poor woman who's suffering, but a thousand or a million, you know, uh, rapists who are all flourishing. But that's not right. And you're right. That's not right because utilitarianism is not true. It's a bad metaphysical theory. And there are a lot of other arguments against utilitarianism um, that can be raised. But I think it's a very clear one. Uh, it, it, it's you have these obvious cases where, um, you know, a, a, a very small minority suffers for the benefit of a huge majority, and you want to say, well, that's, that's not right, well, but that, that's the case, then you can't just appeal to human flourishing. There are always going to be trade-offs, and, and, and uh, you, can't, you, can't, you can't say, therefore, anything that makes people flourish is good. I mean, but lots of bad things make people happy. It doesn't make them good. Yeah, that's, that's, that was going to just be my next question, is for you to touch on it again. Um, 
in a little more detail again, why can't morality be grounded in human happiness? And, and same reason. I mean, you can define. I mean, what is flourishing happiness? I think they're more or less interchangeable. You can define. You can tweak. You can trick flourishing out in a very complicated way. But at the end of the day, okay. I think it comes to, to long-term happiness, the happiness of people for all eternity. But again, yeah. you can imagine a possible universe in which I have two people or three people. You know, one woman and two rapists. Right. And they're when they die, everyone's going to die. It's the end of humanity. Is it good for them to you know to rape her at, at, at her expense and, and make her miserable? But they're both very happy. No, it's, it's evil, right? Well, there you go. <laughs> that's, that's it. Uh, you can't just say you, what makes us happy is good. Again, because lots of people, I mean, think about really, think about the, you know, the sort of paradigms of evil in the world. Who says they're not happy? Look at, I mean, Kim Jong-il probably was pretty happy. He was a tyrant. He killed millions of, I mean, maybe not millions, but he, he oppressed millions of people. Uh, but if he, what if he was really happy? Was that, is that good? Uh, well, you know, you, know, you want to say no, but it gets, it's hard when you start, dabbling in utilitarianism. Right. That's, that's a good answer. Um, is truth-seeking good or obligatory? So, for example, doesn't the Christian God uh, require us to believe things on faith, whether they're true or not? Yeah, well, I just a common objection, too, that, oh, faith just means belief in the absence of evidence. But again, if you look at the Bible, it's not the way it defines faith. And in fact, if you look at Christian history... Christians have pretty much never defined faith that way. The, the reformers taught that, that biblical saving faith consisted of three components, the, the last of which was, uh, was fiducia, or, or, or a trust, basically. So I think a good synonym for faith in the Bible simply means trust, personal trust or confidence in God. So when the Bible says that we're to have faith in God, it means that we're to trust in him. Uh, and you can have, and faith can be based, trust can be based on evidence. For instance, you know, I have faith in my wife. I trust in my wife, but it's not in the absence of evidence. I have all the evidence in the world that she loves me and that she's trustworthy. In the same way, we have lots of evidence that God is good, that he loves us, and, because, and that, you know, he's perfect and he's done good things for us. And because of that, uh, I can put my trust in him, not uh, in the teeth of the evidence, but on the basis of the evidence he's given us. And, uh, and if you look at the Bible, there's so many places where faith is, where tr- faith is defined in this way or used in this way. Um, but I want to go back to the question you had about truth-seeking. I think it's a, a really great formulation of the, of the argument. Uh, yeah. And I think it's just very potent. You can reformulate the argument in this way. You can say, number one, if, God, uh, if a truth-loving God does not exist, then seeking the truth is neither good nor obligatory. Premise two, but seeking the truth is good and obligatory. So three, therefore, a truth-loving God must exist. So it's very similar to the traditional moral argument, but I think it's much harder for, for, for atheists, actually. The reason is because, what's, can you guide premise one? Uh, so maybe truth-seeking can be good in the absence of God, and the answer is it's actually very hard. I have a friend named Vlad Chituk, who's an atheist. I've actually had, debated with him. He's a really thoughtful guy. And he actually agrees with me. He says it's incredibly hard to claim that seeking the truth is good uh, if atheism is true. And why is that? Well, because if atheism is true, even if you're a moral realist, you believe that objective moral values and duties do exist, you usually try to ground them in things like human flourishing, right? What makes humans flourish is good. But now let me ask you a question. What's the guarantee that seeking the truth will lead to human flourishing? None. Here's a, there are right. billions of counterexamples. Here's one. Imagine my, my grandmother is a Christian. She's on her deathbed. I'm an atheist. She asks me, she says, I can't wait. You know, I'm sad to die. 
but I can't wait to see my little baby who died when she was little, my husband, my beloved God who loved me, who died for me on the cross. I can't wait for all that. But I heard that there's some atheists out there who don't believe those things. But let me ask you, grandson, uh, is, does God exist or not? Now, as an atheist, you encourage her to seek the truth of atheism. Let's say atheism is true. Do you encourage her to seek the truth of atheism, or do you lie to her? The answer is you have to lie to her. In fact, you're obligated to lie to her because if she seeks the truth and, be, and realizes that God does not exist, she'll be miserable. And you know that. She's dying. So the, the, the upside is so basically by, by only by lying to her and perpetuating her false belief can you facilitate human flourishing. So in this, you can multiply these examples infinitely. So it's very hard to affirm that truth-seeking is always, always, always good if atheism is true. On the other hand, if Christianity is true, read the Bible. It's full of statements about how God is true, his word is true, he asks us to believe truth and not lies. And in fact, it goes so far as to say that people who are lost are lost because they fail to love the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, you'll know the truth, so it'll set you free. So the Bible is full of commands that says God does love the truth. He commands us to seek it. And in the end, in the end, in the final accounting of all things, those who seek the truth and God is the truth will find complete happiness and joy in his presence. So Christianity can, can explain why truth-seeking is good, but atheism cannot. And the, the second premise, then, yeah. you can say, well, I deny it. Maybe, maybe truth-seeking is not good after all. Maybe it's not good or obligatory. Well, here you have a serious problem as an atheist. Uh, if an atheist came to me and said, you should, you should embrace the truth of atheism and reject false religious dogmas like Christianity, well, I would say to them, well, why? Is, is truth-seeking good or obligatory? Should I seek the truth? And if they say, well, no, no, it's just, you know, it's not objectively good or obligatory, I'd say, well, then why on earth should I seek to know whether atheism is true or not? I'm happy being a Christian. I love Jesus, and it's made me objectively a better person, more compassionate, more loving. So... Again, I ask you, why are you coming to me and telling me to do something that is neither good nor obligatory for me? It's like coming to me and saying, you must cheer for the you know, Boston Red Sox. I say, well, that's your opinion, but don't push your opinion on me. On the other hand, as a Christian, I can go to an atheist and say, you should seek the truth. The truth is good. God commands you to seek the truth. It's obligatory for you as a human being. So it's a very strange paradox that Christians can affirm that truth is good and obligatory, but atheists can't. I like that. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And yeah, I think it's times, a very powerful argument. Yeah, and at all times, you know, to seek the truth, because it's always going to end uh, in our happiness. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And Christianity, so, can, it can reconcile the fact that, you know, truth-seeking can be hard for the for the time being, right? Seeking the truth, you know, let's say if Christianity is true, being a Christian in some places is what you killed, right? And so you'd much rather not seek the truth and, and lie to yourself and say Christianity is not true but in the end, Christianity says all things will be put right. And in the end, we can reconcile clinging to the truth and seeking it with our eternal joy and happiness. But you can't do that on, on atheism because there's not going to be any final accounting where, you know, where all debts are settled in a sense. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. Let's look at, look at a, little, a little twist on the moral argument. Uh, maybe the Christian would say, uh, if God accepts me on the basis of Jesus' goodness, then why should I be good? Right, yeah, this is where I want to get, this is what I alluded to at the beginning. So um, people, I, I think, have to engage with the moral argument at some level uh, when they're engaging with Christianity. And that's because the Christian message in, 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 in unavoidably deals with moral issues. 
And so let me step back and ask the question. I've made a case tonight, hopefully, a reasonable case that the moral argument is at least, at least plausible. Hopefully that it's, that it's good. It's a good argument. The question is, well, why do so many people reject it? If it's a good argument, if both premises are true, then why do people reject it? And I, I want to look at what the Bible actually says about this. Believe it or not, the Bible explains why we would reject the moral argument. So, uh, both, in fact, both premises. So, first, why do we reject premise two of the moral argument? Uh, the premise two says that objective moral facts, objective moral values and duties actually exist. The Bible says, uh, says this about why we reject moral facts. Uh, this is from John 3, 19 to 21, just after John 3, 16, actually. It says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's an incredibly insightful. Whether or not you think the Bible is inspired, whether it's scripture, I think it's an incredibly insightful statement. What it says is that we have an existential fear of moral facts. You know, it's, it's nice. Well, there's a really a nice appealing thing about moral relativism, which is, which is that no, nothing and no one can tell you that you do bad things. You, nothing can tell you that you do evil things because there is no good, there is no evil, so nothing can call into question the way you're living your life. If I want to live a life of love and compassion, that's, that's my business. If I want to live a life of oppression and injustice and, and hurting other people and getting away with it, that's my business. If there are no moral standards, I can live however I want, and you can't even call it evil. So this shows why we're attracted to reject premise two. We don't like the fact that there is good and evil, and so we deny that it exists. And John 3 says, that's right, men, all of us, atheists, Buddhists, Christians, evangelical Christians, born-again, reformed, Southern Baptist, evangelical, all of us do evil. And we, because of that, we hate the light. But it also explains why we reject, reject premise one of the moral argument. Premise one is that uh, it not only does the moral facts exist, but that God is the explanation of those moral facts. He's the moral, there's a moral law, and he's the moral lawgiver. So that's a separate point. So, for instance, look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. Isaiah is a very religious, godly, pious Jewish man. He loves God. He's presumably a righteous man, you know, living according to what God commands. But when he sees God, here's what he says. He's a prophet. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. The lips, by the way, were the, mo were the most sort of holy part of a prophet, right? They speak the words of God. So even he's, when he says his lips are unclean, he's saying the, the holiest part of me is filthy, and I am ruined. So that's premise one right there, because we're not just rejecting a moral law. That's one thing. You know, what if a moral law exists? You say, well, you know, okay, I've broken the moral law, but it's just an abstract thing, this immaterial moral law. It's not going to hold me accountable. But it's another thing, a wholly different thing, to reject the moral lawgiver. When the moral right. law is are, are the commands of a moral lawgiver, who who you to whom you owe everything. This is a God who who created you, a God who loves you, a God who offers you forgiveness, a God who time and time again has had patience with you, and you reject Him. You don't want to deal with that. So this is why we're afraid of premise one as well. We don't like the idea of not just rejecting the moral law, but the moral lawgiver. So I think 
interesting in the Bible, and this is throughout the Bible, the Bible explains both why we reject the moral law and the moral lawgiver. Um, but I want to, you know, I hope some, some non-Christians are listening to the, this talk right now. And I mentioned this to Sam at the very beginning. He was asking me, well, how far can the moral argument go? Uh, you know, it can, maybe it can show that, that some kind of God exists, that God is good, that God's perfectly good, that he's immaterial, and that he's a personal God. He's not a, a force in the universe. But can it get you anything else? Because that kind of God is the God that, you know, Christians and Jews and Muslims and other monotheists, they all believe in that kind of God. I want to claim that there's something very unique about the relationship uh, of morality to the Christian gospel. It's totally unique to Christianity. Let me read very briefly from Ephesians chapter 2. It says this. It says, um, as for you, he's talking to Christians, by the way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. And all of us also once lived among them, and these people that are dead. We were all dead. All of us, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Amen. Now, what does all that mean? The, the Christian view of morality and, and God's law in general is, again, as far as I know, I, I haven't, I'm not a religious studies major, but I've, you know, I've, I've read about other religions. I've talked to people who have other faiths. And I, I think it's, I've never had anyone say, no, you're wrong. But Christianity is the only religion that teaches that we are complete and utterly moral failures. Every single one of us. We are, as the Bible says, dead in sin. We are hopelessly evil. And because of that, there's no way for us to be accepted by a morally pure God. We are children of wrath. In our, in our nature. But the way God has accepted us is by sending Jesus to live the perfect life, a life of perfect love, perfect obedience to God, to die the death that we deserve, the death of a rebel, a sinner, a moral failure, you know, and then to rise from the dead to reconcile us to God. That's why Christianity says that, that having a relationship with God, that being accepted by God is not the result of your morality because you don't have any. It's purely a gift of God's grace. The moral law cannot save you. The moral law only shows you the need for a savior, and Jesus is that savior. So, the, and I think that's interesting because you can use the moral argument to get to a perfect, a perfectly moral God. Right. If, and then it can turn around and condemn us. Yeah, yeah, that's not good news. You know, we just talked about why we reject premise one and premise two because deep down, all of us know that we are guilty. That if we really, we know that we ought to live a life of love and gentleness and self-sacrifice for other people and love for the God who created us, we know we ought to do that and we know we are failures. And we have to, that's why we hide, we, we, we hide from God, we hide from him, we hide from the law, we deny that he exists. And, but God alone in Christianity, in the gospel, comes to us and says, you couldn't do what you, what you aren't doing, keeping the law that I've given you. I have done for you. I will give it to you as a gift. You can be rightly related to me now, today, by trusting what I have done through Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. So I think, again, that answers Sam's question. I think if you really think carefully about the moral law, it does not give you shiny, happy thoughts. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It tells us that we're supposed to love God and love people, but it condemns us as lawbreakers, and it drives us to a Savior. I love that, dude. I never, I never, <laughs> never thought about that. 
like that before. That is that is totally awesome. That is that is really what is unique um, about Christianity with the moral law, because you're right with Islam, you still are, are having to do a bunch of works and and uh, and that to to get right with God. So. That is good stuff, man. We are definitely going to have you back on the show and uh, appreciate all the work you put into this. I know you it was kind of last minute, which I know you've you've put a lot of work into it. And, man, it's it's been good. Yeah, we've not done a show on the moral argument yet, so that is really good. Yeah, and for the reasons I mentioned, I think it's just key because it really is so intimately tied to the gospel. until you grapple, I mean, this is the way, you know, C.S. Lewis is near Christianity. You know, he says, until someone really tries to be a good person, they recognize that there is a moral law and tries to keep it, they don't really understand how, how, how bad they are. Until right. you try to keep the moral law, you don't recognize their sin. That's what the law is for. One of the primary purposes is to show us our utter failure and our need for someone who is good, who can come and rescue us. That's, that's the beauty of Christianity. It really is. High view of God. Love you, man, you know, and sin. So, we'll appreciate it, brother, and we will be having you back on again. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. No problem. God bless. Okay. Have a good night. Bye. You too. All right, folks. That was Neil, and uh, good, good topic, good show. Thanks for calling in, Sam. That was a great discussion. Really enjoyed that. I'm going to go ahead and end uh, the show tonight. I want to play a clip from Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. And it is a clip with Pastor Stephen Lawson, and uh, it's it's really good stuff. So it's about three minutes. That's, that's how long it'll be before the show is over. So we'll go ahead and end with that. And we look forward to seeing you next week. May God keep you safe and bless you. And you don't know, be praying to God put somebody in your path this week. You'll be able to give the gospel to and share the faith. We'll talk to you later. God bless. fact that this is a narrow gate requires repentance. It requires leaving your baggage behind. It requires leaving behind the love of sin and the love of the world and love of self. And Jesus said, if any man shall come after me, he must deny himself and take up a cross and follow after me. There is no way to come through this narrow gate except you strip down and strip away all self-sufficiency and all self-righteousness and you humble yourself and you come as a little child into the kingdom of heaven and it is a narrow gate whereby you can only come one at a time. You can't come in a group. You're going to have to peel off from the group. You're going to have to break from the pack. You're going to have to break even from your family and come one at a time to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is calling everyone under the sound of His invitation to leave where they are and to leave what they are and to come immediately to Him and to enter through the narrow gate. You need to know that the Gospel is a command. And you will either live in obedience or disobedience to this Christ who is calling you to enter through the narrow gate. And to fail to respond to this gospel is to commit the greatest sin under heaven. It is to trample underfoot the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to insult the Spirit of grace 
who would be convicting to say no to the gospel of Christ is to commit the greatest sin. Why do you refuse to come to him that you might have life? It's not the signs and wonders. In this here chapter of John, Jesus had just done a bunch of signs and wonders and people didn't believe him. Why? Because Jesus says the scriptures that you read, they testify about me. And Jesus claims we're too hard for people. Jesus claims basically, in essence, were you think you can work your way there. You can't. You've sinned. You deserve God's wrath. You can't dig your way out of your hole. But I am God. I will live a perfect life and die for you, taking the wrath of the Father upon myself. Now you must repent and put your trust in me. The people then, they hated that message. And people today, they hate that message. And it's a shame. Because the option is, you can just work like crazy to try to get to heaven. Knock yourself out. And you know in your heart of hearts, that little conscience that tells you, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in big trouble here. I am not doing enough. Besides, even if I do a bunch, how will I ever make up for these sins? You can't. But Jesus did. And this day, he promises you life. Why wouldn't you run to him? Why wouldn't you flee to him? Most likely, it's your pride or love of sin or you think you're too dirty to be forgiven. He promises, come unto him in repentance and faith. He will not greet you with a scowl, but with love and forgiveness. 